Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, comedian, filmmaker, gang member, maybe, maybe from the present, kind of from the past. I'm wearing some type of leather. Is it modern? Is it throwback? I don't know. Let's do some singing and hit stuff. That is a very long description for yourself there, Jason. I just um, pitched the whole movie, baby. You did. You <laughs> sort of did. Um, and that is related to our movie for this episode. This season, we've been talking about the films of 1984. And in this episode, we are talking about the somewhat baffling flop, Streets of Fire. It is our uh, our flop episode. And we're covering, I, you know, it's a movie that it, it was a box office failure, but I think we talked about, we could have put this in our cult classic episode as well, because this movie has certainly engendered quite a cult following, unlike some of the big uh, flops that we've talked about in past seasons where no one really likes them. Um, <laughs> over the years, this movie has, uh, has built up quite an audience, but at the time it was released, was definitely one of the biggest failures of 1984 from Walter Hill. So it's a it's an interesting film, certainly. We uh, we often talk about uh, midnight movies, Josh and Dave. Before we got on, was saying, um, and you know, Dave will tell you why he's not a fan of it. But he thought he thought if he saw it with an audience in a theater on like a midnight showing, it might it might change things. I mean, this could totally be like a Rocky Horror thing. We could all dress up. I could be Ellen Aim, you could be Tom Cody. What fun we would have, guys. <laughs> yeah, and I, I'm sure this is a movie that has been shown in that context uh, over the years because it, it absolutely fits in that realm. It was, however, not successful when it came out. It grossed $8.1 million at the box office on its budget of $14.5 million, although this is another movie where the actual budget may have been larger because it kind of ballooned over the course of production. But those are the official figures that I found, which are still not good. Um, yeah. That, when I was uh, researching it, Josh, I think it went uh, almost double that budget. It went about 14 million over from what I read. Yeah. So certainly not a success from the standpoint of uh, of the studio or or anyone involved, really. Um, I was also nominated, as we've talked about, the the possibly um, suspect Razzie Awards, but it was nominated for a Worst Supporting Actress Award for Diane Lane as uh, Ellen Aim, as you mentioned, who is the, the rock singer who gets kidnapped by the biker gang and sort of sets off the entire plot of this movie, uh, such as it and is. That just seems unnecessary. I mean, I don't know. She you think she deserved a Razzie Award nomination for this? No, I don't. I mean, and as we've talked about numerous times related to the Razzies, I think what they do is less about finding the actual worst and is more about kind of piggybacking on the publicity of movies like this that have failed and using right. that pile to- on. Yeah, exactly. So- well, well, Josh, it's too bad the Oscars didn't pile on to the accolades from the Sitkus Film Festival. Or Amy Madigan won Best Actress. Mm. And that's a that's a prestigious, that's a, a genre film festival. We talked about that festival in our, our Halloween episode on Trick or Treat, I believe, 
it was one of the festivals where that movie was uh, promoted and and received some attention. And that that festival still exists and is one of the most prestigious genre festivals. So uh, no need to be dismissive of sit sitgis or sitgis. I don't even know how you pronounce that. Well, then who's really dismissive? Maybe you should learn how to pronounce it. I may, maybe I should. <laughs> um, critical reaction to this movie seems to have been largely negative, but not entirely negative. And um, I think even the negative responses from critics were were more like confused than angry, let's say. Um, <laughs> You know, because I, I think in part because Walter Hill had engendered a lot of goodwill with the previous movies that he had made and, and critics were inclined to like uh, the new Walter Hill movie and were sort of perplexed when they didn't. Um, but Roger Ebert actually was fairly positive and he does seem at times in his review to sort of be trying to convince himself that he liked it. Hmm. Um, he says, uh, Walter Hill's Streets of Fire begins by telling us it's a, quote, rock and roll fable from another time, another place. The movie is right on the rock and roll, but the alternative time and place are mysteriously convincing, especially if, like me, you believe the most beautiful post-war American cars were Studebakers. Hill likes characters who are broadly symbolic. He occasionally gives us people who are individuals, but mostly he likes characters who stand tall and represent good or evil and settle the matters of the universe with unlimited violence. That's what we get this time. What we also get is some interesting atmosphere, which owes a lot to the art direction and the background musical score by Ry Cooter. Um, and that's kind of just some little excerpts there. I, I always enjoy in the Ebert reviews when you get a glimpse into Ebert's weird personal interests like Studebakers. So yeah, I know Josh. Uh, as as we know, you you also like when he talks about what a ladies' man he used to be. So are yes. you picturing Ebert taking out some dames in his Studebakers <laughs> right now in the you know post war Chicago or something? I wasn't, but now I am, and I I think that that is quite a picture right there. Where's that movie? I want to see that movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Where's the Roger Ebert biopic that's mostly devoted to his early days as a ladies' man, as a playboy? <laughs> um, yes. So, Josh, I mean, obviously, we know they did film some of this in Chicago and all of those kind of lifted train kind of stations and the architecture of it is based on it. So I can see Ebert's affinity for it, even if he didn't like anything else. But as you said, it does sound like he liked a few of the elements of it. Ry Cooter, you mentioned we will uh, was playing a big part in 1984 as we go forward. He is indeed. And and yes, he's he's only one of the I mean, the, the lineup of, of musicians that contributed to this movie is quite impressive. And he's only one of them. And Ebert did mention in another part of the review that I didn't quote, he did specifically mention that the Chicago train. So he's he's a diehard Chicago guy, certainly. Um, Janet Maslin in The New York Times is is one who seems to want to give Walter Hill credit, but is unable to. Um, she says, if Walter Hill has directed any of the players in Streets of Fire, his self-proclaimed rock and roll fable, to do anything but talk tough and look hot, it doesn't show on the screen. Sexy posturing is what Streets of Fire is about. And if it were sexier or less humorless, it might really work. Mr. Hill has made a stimulating but finally exhausting exercise in thrill-seeking. Streets of Fire has a lot more to do with desperado lore than with rock and roll, though it is accompanied by a loud and over-persistent score. Visually, Streets of Fire lies somewhere between The Wild One and Blade Runner, 
as a lot of 1950s-influenced new wavers in black leather race through decaying urban settings that have a bleak, nocturnal, faintly futuristic beauty. Mr. Hill is a superb stylist, and the gap between the visual effects and their narrative idiocy is enough to make you weep. As in The Warriors, he has constructed a great-looking, but essentially pointless, pop parable. And she went on in, in uh, other sections to really hammer home how much she hated the music. Let me ask you something, Maslin. <laughs> what you know about these streets? <laughs> <laughs> um, so at one point, Josh, was, she said less humorless, so more humor? Is that what? Yeah, that what I think she, wants, she wanted it to be, to be sexier and funnier is what she's trying to say. I thought there was a lot of fun comedy in this, intentional or not, like... I don't care. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it, it was funny to me. Yeah. So basically the theme is uh, that we're getting is uh, he can put together a really slick, awesome looking movie, but they don't like the stories. Is that is that kind of I, I most think, of the criticism is? I think that's the idea. Not And not only the story, but again, from Maslin's perspective, the music she really didn't like and the acting. I wonder, I, you know, there's so many musicals in 1984 that we've kind of discussed when planning this season. Uh, It'll be interesting to see what Janet Maslin says about some of the other musical pictures of the year. Yeah, and it, it, to me, it seems like it's less about the placement of music in the in the in the structure of the movie, and more that she just really doesn't like the music itself. Right, um, and that and that's a little unfair because you don't have to like a certain type of music to recognize its effectiveness in a in a film. Right. I agree. And I think there's a lot of times for me, at least watching a movie that is heavily influenced or that that is heavily driven by music. And I wouldn't really want to listen to that music on its own, but it enhances the experience of the movie and it is used well within the context of that. And I think that's the case here, that the music is used quite well. Uh, she also wasn't the only one to compare this movie to Blade Runner, although I think wherever that I, I didn't quote the other section. Uh, in another review, but that came up a couple times. Yeah, you said, you know, the wild one meets Blade Runner. Couldn't you just sell this movie on that pitch alone? Like, how great does that sound? Right, it sounds great. And I mean, as as, as uh, Walter Hill and his his partners um, as in, in writing and producing did sell this movie and in quite possibly on a pitch like that. Uh, I mean, this is a movie that the studio was very much behind until it suddenly failed. So I think the pitch for this movie does sound great. You're absolutely right on that. And uh, finally, Gary Arnold in the Washington Post was another one who was disappointed in Walter Hill. He said, the disappointing thing about Streets of Fire is that it can't deliver on the promise of a tangy, sexy evening of stimulation. The failure is aggravated by the exorbitant scale of the production, which seems much too lavish for an atmosphere of B-movie squalor. Not that one can work up a major case of disappointment about such a harmless attraction, but even that hesitancy is a clue to what's gone wrong. Harmless is a strange word to find yourself applying to a movie directed by Walter Hill. And it, weirdly, he wrote a very long review, as, as he often does, Gary Arnold, and he seems to have read the script before seeing the movie for some reason, and just talked about how disappointing the uh, execution was. So he actually liked the story and was complaining in part about the, the sort of weird 50s slash 80s pastiche that to me is the most one of the most distinctive things about this movie. Yeah, what the heck, bro? You're like, hey, this movie looks too good or too expensive, you know? It <laughs> right. should look more 
you know, cheaper and B movie like, you know, um, I love the look of the movie. And, you know, it's uh, Andrew Laszlo, the uh, the uh, cinematographer who was also the cinematographer on uh, The Warriors, which Walter Hill's most famous movie. And then First Blood and Newsies, to name a few other. I mean, he crushed this thing, dude. Yeah, it looks great. I think uh, the cinematography, the production design, which was a huge undertaking for this film and a huge headache, but it it pays off. And I think the editing, too, and there is a quote somewhere, I think, on the Wikipedia where Walter Hill talked about how he didn't realize how difficult it would be to shoot musical numbers, which was something he'd never done before. But I think that comes off really well. And there's some really creative uh, like freeze frames and edits and stuff during the musical numbers. So I'm 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 with well, maybe not with Maslin because she didn't like the music. But I, I definitely think the the way that this movie falls apart is in the story, is in the writing, the story, the dialogue and, and also in a lot of the acting. I think the performers aren't quite or not enough of the performers are charismatic enough to pull this off. Yeah, and we'll get into that. But you mentioned the production designer. That's John Valone. Uh, Dave, if you want to look up the editor's name, I don't have that in front of me. But um, yeah, I mean, look, it's carried by the music and the look. There is uh, some performances that don't hold up, as you said. But the editing uh, I, you were talking about, uh, Larry Gross, the co-writer, was like, Every day that they were in the editing room, it just started to look and feel better. And they really were able to shape something out of it. So um, that's interesting. You know, that's that's where movies are made in the editing room. So, yeah. And I think this movie comes across that way that it's got it's just got so much stuff thrown into it that and it's not a long movie. It's a 90 minute. It's a tight film. And the editing has got to be where they really like fit all that stuff together or, or don't. I mean, uh, this movie certainly is not a full on success by any stretch of the imagination, <laughs> but um, I think with, with so many weird elements, the fact that it holds together at all is kind of impressive. I mean, Walter Hill's a pro man, you know, he's not going to just make something that uh, is just, uh, just doesn't work at all. You know, he's a, he's a, he knows how to put a movie together. Uh, yeah, it seems that way. Maybe, maybe less so later in his career, but that's a, that's a topic for, for later. Um, do you have any other background info on this you want to share, Jason? I mean, Josh, of course, as you know, it was, it was named after Bruce Springsteen's song. Uh, of you course. Know that, right. Um, yes. and then, you know, as I was telling Dave, they were, that was the whole big thing at the end is that they wanted Ellen Aim to sing Streets of Fire from the Darkness on the Edge of Town album. And uh, Bruce gave him the rights to the music, but not for another performer to sing it. So Jim Steinman wrote, um, uh, tonight is what it means to be young in like two days, which is a great, which is a great eighties anthem. You know, I love Springsteen, but I also love tonight is what it means to be young. So Yeah, I agree. And I'm not familiar with that Springsteen song, but I, I don't, Honestly, I can't imagine it having been like a better closing anthem for this movie. It, it wouldn't have fit. It doesn't make sense because Streets of Fire is, you know, maybe would fit better in the Warriors where it's like kind of these grody, you know, street racers and, you know, the life that they lead and everything. But, you know, the spirit of Streets of Fire, the, the movie is less about kind of, I mean, there's the gang warfare, but really tonight is what it means to be young is the theme that like the music kind of can overtake whatever is bad going on in this city, in this life, in this world and, and propel you to dreams and, and greater heights, Josh. 
Yes. And this movie is about, I mean, is this something I didn't notice when watching it, but reading the background um, where Walter Hill really wanted it to be about sort of being young and he would, he didn't cast any actors over 30. So there, there are no old people in this weird fictional city um, or even middle-aged people. So um, certainly the idea of youth is something that they're trying to capture here. And, uh, and that's what that song is all about. Had you seen this one before, Jason? No, I had never seen it, Josh. How about you? No, I hadn't either. And uh, as, as we'll also get to later, um, I had, however, seen the sort of unofficial sequel, Road to Hell, directed by Albert Pune, which is a whole other weird project. And when I watched that movie at a film festival, I had never even heard of this movie. So it was very confusing to watch. Um, and that was sort of how I became aware of this. But I had not uh, gotten to it, although it's I, it's the kind of thing that I probably would have wanted to see uh, in that sort of midnight movie cult realm. I, I enjoy checking that stuff out. So I was glad to get a chance to see it. And uh, Dave, you watched it a little while ago. Is that right? Yeah, I watched it like a month ago for a guest appearance on the Binge Movies podcast. Shout out to those guys. But uh, yeah, I had also been to that Road to Hell premiere that you were at and uh, hadn't heard of this at the time either. Um, so it was weird to see a sequel to something I didn't know existed, but a lot of people loved. And yeah. Dave, was that the point of the Binge Movies uh, episode? Was it like, hey, here's a movie that you might not know that doesn't necessarily have a lot of acclaim, but you should really check it out. Yeah, it was five of those that we had to binge and then rank. So where did fun. this one rank on your your top five in that episode? I think it was dead center at number three for me. I'd have to dig up my well, what else was on there. Uh, dead Heat, which I absolutely loved. And uh, uh, Deadly Friend, the, uh, the Wes Craven movie. And then Short Circuit, which I really did not like. Um, mm. And then what was the other one? Oh, yeah. Midnight Mile. Another 80s movie. Yeah, those are all kind of oddball 80s movies, I think. So interesting list. Yeah. Well, we will get more into those thoughts when we come back in a moment and talk about our general impressions of Streets of Fire. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year in this episode of our season on the films of 1984. We're talking about the biggest flop of the year, or at least one of the big flops of the year, is Walter Hill's Streets of Fire. And this is one of those movies where watching it, you can see why it did not do well at the box office. Whether you like it or not, this is not a movie that's going to be widely loved, I think. Yet Blade Runner was. Well, even Blade Runner, I think, took a while to become the success that and the classic that has, it has become. You know, and Blade Runner had a lot of behind the scenes clashes and there there's multiple cuts of Blade Runner. And uh, I don't think it's a it's a clear success necessarily. But are you do you, are you trying to trash Blade Runner? Is that what you're doing there? No, Jeff? I'm trying to give Streets of Fire the credit it deserves as a modern masterpiece, Josh. Wow. Uh, OK, mm. I'm not necessarily saying it's a masterpiece, but uh, but it's awesome. And I loved it. And um it, it, when we go through movies on awesome movie year, when you discover these little gems that you never knew, like it's always fun to watch a good movie, but it's also fun to watch something. You're like, whoa, this wasn't supposed to be this enjoyable. You know, there's so bad. It's bad. And so bad. It's good. This definitely falls into the ladder, but it's not just so bad. It's good. It's so technically excellent along with the bad stuff that you're like, what am I not supposed to enjoy here? Like, 
this dude is just blowing up motorcycles with a firebombing gun or something. And now uh, Diane Lane is acting like she's Pat Benatar, Bonnie Tyler. And uh, and and then there's a, a, a doo-wop group for no reason. And uh, there's just some cool car chases in this neon futuristic past city. It was like, man, yeah, I'm in on this. <laughs> and you didn't yeah. even get to Willem Dafoe yet. Right. right, and well, a young Willem <laughs> Dafoe. So. And his his weird leather overalls that he wears. Um, <laughs> that was one of those things that I found interesting, Josh, is that, like, you know, all these people are dressed, uh, like, kind of, like, new agey. And then Michael Paré's character is like, hey, I just came from tilling the farm in the 1930s or something like yeah, that. Yeah, you know, it's a bold move to have your character who's meant to be the ultimate badass wear suspenders for the entire movie. I have to like, I have to give them credit for that. He looked um, like he came out of like hell or high water or, you know, something, you know. Yeah. Uh, some Southern uh, Gothic film. And, and and Walter Hill has said, and you can see this where the his idea or one of his ideas behind this movie was everything that he thought was cool when he was a teenager he wanted to put all of that into a movie. And he clearly didn't think Genius. about whether all of that stuff fit together in any way, but it was just throw it all in. So that quote is custom cars, kissing in the rain, neon, trains in the night, high speed pursuit, rumbles, rock stars, motorcycles, jokes in tough situations, leather jackets, and questions of honor. Like, you're the man, Walter Hill. Like, <laughs> take a bow, bro. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, again, it does. It does feel like in a lot of ways, it's this sort of just unfiltered look into his imagination, which is cool. Um, and this is another one of those movies. And we've talked about this a few times where a filmmaker made a really successful movie and thus was in the position to do basically whatever he wanted. And Walter Hill had just made 48 hours and he was able to go into a studio and say, here's my weird ass vision. And they're like, go. You know, and sometimes that works out really well uh, and sometimes it's not so much. But I always I always appreciate being able to see those kinds of movies. Yeah, I agree with you, Josh. And I wonder, you know, they're less they're lesser. They're not as produced as much now as they used to be. But like, you know, I'm looking at this as a film, like you said, that had to find its audience because it's so much all in your face at once. And you could see like. If you don't go with it right from the beginning, how the next 90 minutes, um, you know, aren't going to be enjoyable to you. But I just I got into it right away, man. So I you seem to not feel the same way. I mean, I like I didn't I didn't like it as much as you did or I didn't enjoy it as much as you did. But I did get into it right away. Actually, the opening, which is the the first musical number by Ellen Aim. Um, the going nowhere fast, which was another Jim Steinman composition, which is great. Like the song is great and the way that they shoot it is great. And Diane Lane comes on the screen with this great charisma. And I was like, oh, wow, this is awesome. And then Michael Pere shows up and <laughs> he's, the, he's awesome. the weakest part of the movie and he's the lead. And that that's unfortunate. I 100% agree with you. And every Larry Gross quote that I read just trashes him and how he shouldn't have been the star and how he brought the movie down. And, you know, he just really goes out of his way to talk about how bad Michael Perret is. And uh, it's kind of interesting. At, at one point they did offer the role to Tom Cruise and Tom Cruise was committed to another film at the time, but 
Tom Cruise, Eric Roberts, Patrick Swayze were the big three that I had read about, all of which would have been better. But um, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, yeah. Bray, not the best in this one. Although no. his voice does sound shockingly similar to Jeff Anderson's in Clerks. It does. I noticed that too. It was very strange. Um, so, I mean, and I think it's not just Michael Perret. I mean, we can pile on him and that's fair. And this was basically like the, the, the beginning and also the pinnacle of his career, um, really. And yeah, he had to run like 84 and 85 with this in the Philadelphia Experiment, right? Yeah. And then he just kind of, he didn't take off the way that they, I'm sure, would have hoped for a discovery like this. Um, but I think it's also the character. He is such this, like, I mean, they want to turn him into this archetypal badass hero. And again, something from the imagination of teenage Walter Hill or the other thing he talked about where he wanted to make what he thought of as like a comic book movie, but he didn't actually like any comic books. So he just invented his own idea. And I think this definitely feels like a movie that's trying to be a comic book, but was made by somebody who doesn't actually like comic books. Um, and yeah, but in a way that works because we've seen movies about people who are experts at comic books and it's like a love, like, you, like you've brought up in past movies, like, uh, you know, I think in one of our documentaries, you said, you know, the filmmaker was too close to the subject or something like that, and that took it out for you. Um, in this regard, I, we've seen a lot of great comic book movies by comic book experts. But I kind of think the fact that he knew so little or cared so little and was just like, man, I'm just going to do my thing. Like, his thing is awesome. So, I mean, like, we both agree one of the best things is the way this thing looks. So, um, and the colors are just pop, you know, like, they're great. Yeah, I, I agree. It does look great. And I love the idea of this sort of fictional city. It's not set in a real place. I mean, it does open with that sort of another time, another place disclaimer right. that's that's very similar to the galaxy far, far away a long time ago, just the Star Wars thing. And the idea that it just immediately puts you in this other frame of mind. And the fact that it's some of it was shot on, on real locations in Chicago and Los Angeles. Some of it was shot on a back lot. And you kind of meld all that together. And it gives you this dreamlike quality of like, where is this? There's the geography of this city seems to change. Like at one point they, they have to go. So Ellen Aim is kidnapped by the bombers, the gang led by Willem Dafoe and Tom Cody, who is Michael Perret's character comes back to town after having been in the military and he's Ellen Aim's ex-boyfriend and he's going to go save her having been hired by her current boyfriend played by Rick Moranis. And so they've got to go to the battery, which Sounds like it's just another neighborhood in this town, but then it takes them like 10 hours to drive there. And I loved that because I was like, on the one hand, I thought this is a logical inconsistency in this movie. Like they've met at noon and then they arrived at 10 PM. And how slow does that car really drive? But on the other hand, I loved that because it was like they were traveling through some sort of portal or something like it just rules of logic don't apply here. Yeah, what I had read was there, um, so this is Richmond, that's the name of the, the yeah, town. Yeah, the Richmond. The Richmond. Richmond. The Richmond. And there's yes. five five different areas like New York, five boroughs, um, but we only see three of them, even though maybe they mention all five. Yeah, and the battery has its own feel, like for, uh, it's the home of rockabilly. <laughs> <laughs> and, and exploding motorcycles, yeah. as, you, as you said. Yeah, I love also that this city appears to be like 90% warehouses. 
which is also awesome. Uh, I think Roger Ebert maybe was the one who described it as like Chicago uh, if it had not been gentrified or something. But it doesn't, even if they shot parts in Chicago, it doesn't, to me, it doesn't evoke any particular city. And that's what I like that about it. Yeah, it's very bombastic and ostentatious. And I guess, you know, I had read that Hill didn't really want to go shoot in Chicago. So they did what they did. And then they built him a whole city on like that back lot, like you said, and it's um, it's it's just its own world. And uh, to me, that's one of the strengths of it. It's like I, I'm not exactly like you mentioned Willem Dafoe's uh, leather leather uh, overalls. Like, why is he wearing those? There's no reason. I no, mean, and no one yeah. no one else in the gang wears them. Right. He's, he's not one. steampunk. He's not doing any type of glass blowing that I can tell or anything, you know. <laughs> he's just in them. And it's like it's the it's the battle of the overalls versus the suspenders in the end, you know, and it's uh doesn't make sense. Rick Moranis is just there to be a dick to Michael Perret the whole time, you know, and uh and again, there's a doo-wop group that's in there for a long period of time. That like what a doo-wop group, you know, um, um, and uh, I just liked all of it for some reason, maybe against my better judgment. But hey, man, it was fun. Yeah, it is fun. And I like that, you know, the doo-wop group and they look very much like the 50s or early 60s singing group. And they've got the the way that they're dressed and they're harmonizing and they're doing acapella on the bus that that has been stolen after as they run from the police. And then in the big final performance, their song is like a total 80s synth pop song. And I did like that where the, the concept of this world is like, what if the 50s was the 80s? And I, or or maybe it's what if the 80s was the 50s? But either way, you know, it, it's that weird, like out of time kind of feel. So yeah, out of time is a good description for it. Um, the song you're talking about is I Can Dream About You by Dan Hartman, which charted at number six, his highest solo piece. And then he wrote Living in America for uh, James Brown. And he wrote Free Ride. Pretty cool song. You know, wow. you're winner, yeah. go on, take mm. a free ride. And uh, he died very young in his mid 40s from uh, AIDS. But a uh, pretty talented songwriter, I'd say. Those are three very different types of songs. They are indeed, yeah. And those, I think that's the thing, again, is that there, there's so much musical talent involved. I mean, we mentioned Ry Cooter, Jim Steinman, who wrote those two amazing songs, Dan Hartman. And then when they go to the Battery, the, as you said, which is the home of Rockabilly, the Rockabilly band that's playing there is the Blasters with Dave Alvin, who is a major like kind of Americana alt country figure. And that's a great song. The blue shadow that they play there is another really catchy song. So I wanted there to be more music. I wished this movie was just like went all in on really actually being a musical. I would have, that would have been cool. That would have been cool. And you know, Jimmy Iovine was kind of like a musical supervisor. Ry Cooter did a really great job kind of scoring it. And he's very good as uh, we'll see in the next episode of kind of, picking a thematic song and and just kind of pushing it throughout, which is something I like, you know, in films. Um, so, yeah, I mean, um, you know, you got to also mention Fire Incorporated, Josh, because that's Ellen Aim right there, you know? Right. Uh, well, Fire Incorporated wasn't a real thing. It was right. just Jim Steinman's made up name for the studio musicians that he used for the Ellen Aim songs. But based, yeah, I don't know. Based with Laurie Sargent. That's, there uh, you go. that's the real kind of 
Uh, it was her and Holly somebody, I think, for the two. Yeah, voices. there were two. There were two singers that he kind of combined to make the voice of Ellen Aim. Um, yeah, I mean the the performance of those songs, everything is really good. And I think Diane Lane, of course, Diane Lane doesn't sing, uh, and I don't think that Diane Lane can sing. But I mean, she gives you the the charisma of the rock star, and she was really young. She was eighteen when she made this movie. Um, and and some of the reviews I read criticized her performance the most, and obviously she was nominated for that Razzie. But I think she really gets that Pat Benatar tough girl rock star thing, like carries that across better than Michael Prey gets you the the tough guy persona. I think. Yeah, she looks like a you know a young beautiful pop star, and and you know the the voices sound somewhere like you mentioned Benatar. Bonnie Tyler and then Patty Smythe from Scandal was the those were the three that just kept popping into my head. And um, I think it's great that, you know, she was nominated for a Razzie and went on to, you know, shove it right up there. Keisters with a long, <laughs> successful career, Josh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in acting wise, well, I guess other than Willem Dafoe, you know, she's maybe the one from the main cast who, you know, went on to the most success and acclaim here. Uh, Amy Amy Madigan had a had a pretty good successful career as a supporting player, you know, right. supporting actress. So. She is, but maybe not as high profile as Diane Lane. And we haven't even mentioned Amy Madigan yet, but her character, McCoy, who's sort of the sidekick to Tom Cody, who is the the tough tomboy, obviously a lesbian. I think we can agree on that. Um, she's great. She's really fun. And that role was originally written as like an out of work dude soldier. And she's like, I want to play that role. And they were like, yeah, that works. So, um, and you know, there's kind of a good uh, uh, interplay with her and McCoy that, um, or that Tom Cody that breaks down kind of at the end. Um, and that's kind of a weakness. They, of course, come back together. But, you know, Josh, you said that the two biggest successes were Diane Lane and uh, Willem Dafoe, but also in this movie, Michael T. Williamson, Ed Bagley Jr., Robert Townsend, mm -hmm. Bill Paxton. Yeah, a lot e. of I mean, very small you know? parts. Yeah, I mean, I was sort of focusing on the main cast, but that's true. There are a lot of up and coming people in very small. I didn't even notice Ed Begley Jr. I wasn't sure who he played in, and I saw his name in the credits, but I totally missed him. Oh, when they go to the battery before they get into like that building, that that hideout, he's like kind of like that street urchin on top of the building. He's like, uh, you guys yeah. know what you and I thought, like, man, is that Ed Begley Jr.? Because that's a very different part for him. Gina right. pointed him out, and and I thought she was wrong, and I had to look it up. And right. uh, yeah, sure. Yeah, he wasn't he wasn't playing the nerdy mayor of the town or something. Right, like he was that, doing so. the exact opposite, which was kind of cool to see. So yeah, and and Bill Paxton, Bill Paxton made the most of all of these movies in the eighties. This and Weird Science, playing this like doofy, like kind of like uh, second or third, you know male uh who's just in a few scenes he really he really makes the most of these yeah he's fun he makes a bigger impression than than, than those other kind of up-and-comers michael t williamson and robert townsend are both members of the duop group and they the sorrells yeah the sorrells and they all just kind of are one entity they don't really have any distinctive personalities there um but bill paxton certainly makes an impression and uh, he's 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 fun to watch. And and I liked, you know, going back to to McCoy and to Amy Madigan, I liked the dynamic. And in a weird way, even though the sort of motivation for the plot is that 
Tom Cody wants to rescue Ellen Aim, who is his ex-girlfriend that he clearly still has a thing for. The central relationship in this movie is between Tom Cody and McCoy. And and it's a friendship. You know, she says, you're not my type. And again, maybe that's some reference to what her sexuality is. But either way, there's no kind of romantic possibility between them. And at the end, when they come together, it's about them like teaming up to have more adventures. And I, I like that about it. I agree. And Josh, in a way, this movie's ahead of its time because I can't really think of a mix, mismatched buddy cop action movie from before this that involves a, you know, male female dynamic, you know, where they're just uh, always at each other's throats. Right. And where they don't fall in love, where it's not the prelude to a romance. So yeah, I liked, I liked that a lot. And again, I think between the, the, the sort of butchness of McCoy and what I read as a bit of weird energy between Tom Cody and uh, Raven, Willem Dafoe's character, this is a super gay movie. I think. I didn't get Mm -hmm. any of that. I mean, I'm, I'm, I mean, I definitely got McCoy <laughs> as a lesbian, but what? Why? Where's the Cody? Well, first of all, Raven, as we've discussed extensively, his wardrobe and and his. I mean, he's dressed like a gay fetish guy. Basically. I mean, that, that's and, kind of stereotyping it, right? He's a, he's well, a fop, certainly. Well, right, and I'm not saying that this is even anything that the movie is deliberately conveying, but to me, between the look of him. And his sort of, their their obsession with each other. And, you know, I think that's often subtext in movies with the the sort of hero and villain who are obsessed with each other. And the, the, the like, visceral physicality of their final confrontation, uh, which involves them swinging very phallic objects at each other for a very <laughs> long period of time. And then abandoning those to, like, get down and dirty with their fists. It... Seemed a little homoerotic. No, no, you're reaching, man. They they had these kind of like weird sickle pickaxes. If you right. ever saw a penis that looked like that, you should send that person right to a doctor, Josh. You know, I mean, I'm not saying that they were fighting with dildos. <laughs> I'm just saying that there are some there's some subtext there that I bet I am not the only person. I'm sure you're on. not the only one. I disagree. But honestly, if they if they just banged, I'd have been. Like, yeah, why not? This is totally cool for this. Right, right. Yeah, I think so. And it it seemed at times that he was a little more concerned with or a little more focused on Raven than he was on Ellen, um, who definitely is better off with Rick Moranis, even though he, as you say, is a total dick to Tom Cody the whole time. Yeah, maybe she'll end up with one of the Sorrells or something like that in the end or go go a totally different way than what we're thinking. But uh, yeah, I don't know, man. I, I didn't get the homoerotic undertones, although, I, like I said, McCoy. Very, right, that's a more know, obvious butch, one. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, again, for a movie that was a flop and for a movie that a lot of people panned, we're, we're finding a lot of good in this film. Yeah, there is. I mean, if we want to be like, I didn't love it. And I think, as I've said, Michael Perret's performance is a big liability here. I think the pacing is also not quite balanced. Like the story is motivated by rescuing Ellen and they do that in like the first half hour of the movie. And then the rest of the movie is them just kind of running away from the gang. And it it drags a bit. It doesn't have as many exciting, fun set pieces. And I think we get those great musical numbers at the beginning. And then there's a lull before we have 
those again at the end. And I love that the, the like the plot wraps up 10 minutes before the movie ends. And then they're like, let's just have some songs now to end <laughs> the movie. And I, I liked that more than the plot. So I felt like that was a shortcoming as well. Yeah, there was another quote from Larry Gross where he was talking about uh, how Hill wanted to take what he did in the Warriors and like hyperalize it, you know, and um, I, all of those criticisms that you just made from a structural standpoint, I think you could make about the Warriors as well. Like in the middle of Act Two, kind of drags for a while before the big endings, and then the ending it just kind of like peters again. But this has a better ending than the Warriors because it does have the LNM song that you just want to sing along to, man. You do. And it's great. I mean, I was I was not joking. I love the fact that I think when I was watching it, I was like, okay, so that's the end. But what's left? And then they're just singing. And I thought that was great because that was the best thing about the movie. So um, and I haven't seen the Warriors in a while, but I remember not liking that. And I think in part because. It, that is like an acknowledged classic, and I expected it to be some sort of gritty gang movie, and it's just as campy as this movie, and I think that threw me a bit. Yeah, there is a gang of mimes in the Warriors, and I just I just can't get around. Like I can see like all the different styles of gangs in that new version in New York, but I can't see why you would be a mime gang. You know, like. Why not choose the ones who paint their faces and carry baseball bats around? You know, I don't know. Um, I like the Warriors. I like this movie better than the Warriors. But yeah, when you talk about the end, Josh, um, maybe that's a perfect transition into the legacy because we can talk about the two sequels that were never made. But of course, we still have to rate it, don't we, before we go to the next segment? We we do have to rate it, Jason. So don't get ahead of yourself here. Do you want to? <laughs> Do you want to rate this out of five uh, pairs of leather overalls? Sure, Josh, we can do leather overalls. <laughs> are they le- are they leather or are they like vinyl overalls, maybe? Some type of very uncomfortable overalls that you're probably going to sweat and chafe in is what we're Not rating Not very breathable. Of. Absolutely. So, that is true. Uh, it gets a... It gets a a three with a, with a hug wrapped around it for me. Three <laughs> pairs of overalls, and I really, really enjoyed it. I'm going to give it three as well, even though I don't think I enjoyed it as much, but I have to give it credit for just swinging for the fences on everything. So and, I can- and you're right. That's one of the things that Gross said. He's like, they just, you know, wh- whatever you feel about it, like he went and he took a big swing out there. Yeah. So I kind of had fun with it. Dave, I think you didn't like it as much as we did. I mean, I gave it a two and a half, so I'm not too far behind you guys. And like I said, I think I would have had a lot more fun with it with an audience. Yeah, I can I can see that. I think it would be an enjoyable movie to watch with a crowd, especially people who are into it, like a Rocky Horror thing where people have seen it a bunch of times and they know what's coming and they're excited about that. It'll yeah. be so much fun as like a midnight midnight movie event. You're right. Yeah. Before we get to the legacy, we've got a special contribution from filmmaker Albert Pune, who is the director of the unofficial sequel, Road to Hell. So let's hear a bit from Albert, and then we'll come back and talk about the legacy of Streets of Fire. (music) 
I'm talking to Albert Pune, director of more than 50 movies, including The Sword and the Sorcerer, Cyborg, and Nemesis. He's also the director of Road to Hell, an unofficial sequel to Streets of Fire, featuring Michael Pere and Deborah Van Valkenburg reprising their roles. So, Albert, can you tell me, what was it like for you the first time you saw Streets of Fire? Uh, well, I was working on uh, my second film, Radioactive Dreams, uh, which was a very weird sort of musical action movie, post-apocalyptic, you know, but it had a lot of music in it. And uh, and I remember it was such a hard film to edit, and the cutting rooms that we had also had right across the hall from us was uh, uh, Oliver Stone was editing uh Salvador. So it was a, you know, it was a really interesting sort of editorial facility. And uh, there's a lot of, in fact, the two people that were working on Radioactive Dreams at that time eventually went to work for uh, Oliver Stone and won Oscars. They edited, came uh, born on the 4th of July. And, you know, they went on because that it was it, back then, unlike now, now everybody works sort of separated from each other. But that, at that time, everybody worked in like a like a beehive, I guess, you know, where everybody was kind of jointly or communally working creatively and trying to solve problems that they had in their cuts and stuff. And I was talking to somebody just down the hall. I can't remember what film it was. But um, they said, uh, I was telling them about Radioactive Dreams because they you know, mentioned about he, they could hear it down the hall. And uh, they said, this sounds like an interesting film. And I said, yeah, but we're having a lot of problems because narratively they try to tell a story with this much music in it and stuff. Uh, you know, it's finding the right balance for tone and stuff for it all to work. And uh, she said, oh, you know, I, if you want, there's a film that's screening tonight at Universal that you might uh, really enjoy seeing. Uh, you know, Walter Hill, you know, the director, and I go, yeah, I love Walter Hill's films. And she said, yeah, so he just directed directing this film called Streets of Fire, and uh, it's sort of like a rock and roll type thing, music pushing along the narrative and and driving the film. And uh, you know, she said maybe you might enjoy seeing that. You can, I can get you in there, get you a couple passes, and you can get on the lot tonight and see it. And I, oh, that'd be great. So I saw it. Before it was released in the theaters, I think it was the final cut of the film. Um, I saw it at Universal, and um, was an invited audience. I don't know, uh, a couple hundred people, and um, I was just blown away by the film. I mean, what I loved most about Walter Hill on that film was that he kind of let his id go wild and was able to find that right balance between comedy, action, uh, iconic, you know, hero, heroic fantasy, and, uh, and rock and roll. And, he, and I just thought that the editing by Freeman Davies was just remarkable. And uh, so it really charged me up and it gave me some hope that we could eventually find our way to getting a cut of Radioactive Dreams that would work. And so that's, I was just, floored by seeing that film and it remains probably you know it, it affected me uh in a way that 
like when I saw uh, 2001 Space Odyssey, how that affected me. And, you know, there's certain films that you see that you just know are transitional and really raise the sort of the bar of, of movie making. And I thought for it was a strict genre movie, but it was so much more than the genre movie. And uh, it didn't compromise. And, you know, I thought it was going to be a big hit. But obviously, when it came out, it, I think it, I don't think it did very well. And um, it was really disappointing that it, it didn't because that didn't bode well for Radioactive Dreams. <laughs> so, Did you end up seeing it more times uh, over the course of the subsequent years? Yeah, well, I saw it one more time because when it first opened... I couldn't go when it first the first night it opened, so I was going to go like you know sometime in a few days, and then I heard that it it, it was going to get yanked out of the theaters because it, it's doing so poorly, and so I went and I think I sat through it, maybe you know I started the first screening was it like around 10 a.m. and I sat through it all the way until the last screening at 11 a.m. 11 p.m. and uh, I, it was just such a, you know, I just didn't understand why it got such bad reviews and, and why audiences didn't get into it. I didn't understand. And I wanted to understand because of Radioactive Rings. I really wanted to figure out what went wrong and why it would be, it would get so much hostility. And, uh, you know, that it was, it was really a deflating moment. It was, the reverse of the first time I saw it at Universal, it was the, the last time I was seeing it at the theater I was seeing it at. And I remember talking to the manager on, on my way out, and he said, yeah, it's, it's a real disappointment, you know, that there that theater chain had really expected it to be a big hit. And it was such, it, I mean, like, even when I went to see it, I think at the normal times that it would have been crowded, I think there were only like two or three people in the audience besides me. So it was, I mean, it was really, really, uh, it just didn't, it got rejected totally by the audience. So that was too bad. Yeah. So what inspired you eventually to decide to make your own sequel? Well, I just thought that, I, you know, over the years I kept thinking, what was it about that movie that just didn't click with audiences? And uh, I was, you know, I had some other ideas about where I sort of saw the characters going beyond the movie, you know, where it was going to go from there. And um, I was really disappointed that uh, Walter Hill didn't continue the the series because I think his plan was originally to make more films based on it. And in the years in between when I saw Streets of Fire and Road to Hell, I had met uh, Michael Pare and I met him on a, he was on a commercial shoot and, and I saw him and I, you know, we hit it off and I told him that I was gonna, that I had an idea that I wanted to, to do with the film with a follow up with those characters. And, uh, I asked him if he was game and, he was, he said he was, and um, I knew that I didn't want to go through Universal and get the sequel rights, and I knew that was way going to be way beyond their budget because 
I self-financed uh, Road to Hell. But I really wanted Road to Hell to be a much darker, sort of more profane version of Streets of Fire. And I thought that maybe, you know, if, if the audiences were going to reject Streets of Fire, then they might as well, I might as well give them something, you know, really out of left field and, uh, you know, from my id, in a sense. And uh, so that's, and I approached, uh, Michael and I were at a film festival in Spain, and I said to him, I said, hey, Michael, do you want to do that film? And he said, sure, send me the script. And I, so I, Cynthia and I worked on the script, and then I sent it to him, and he loved the script. And I think only about three weeks later, we were shooting. Wow. And do you, do you have any favorite memories from the experience of shooting Road to Hell? Yeah, well, I just, I love seeing Mike Foray as that character and in that kind of a role. Because to me, Foray's range is limited. And, but what he can do really well, he can do really, really well. And uh, I think it just that he's, if he stretches beyond the, the limitation, you know, he runs into problems, which is the reason why I think he never became a, a, a big star. And yet, you know, I knew that within, if he could just stick stick to that, like Tom Cody lane of traffic, that he would be terrific. And I think it was, that was the most exciting thing was to see him on set as that character. And, uh, you know, with that voice and the looks and I just thought it was it was really good, and I, I think uh, all all the reviews have been really favorable to him in Road to Hell. I, I haven't read one bad review of his performance. Every, whereas you know, in Streets of Fire, he was you know lambasted a little bit by the critics uh, performance wise, and so I I think that uh, you know just that in that time in the years that that followed the, I try to take advantage of the fact that he must be feeling disappointment in where his career went. And because Streets of Fire really represented supposedly like his big break and he would be breaking out as a star. And, uh, the disappointment of that not happening, I try to integrate into the, into Road to Hell. And that's why the character is really dark. It was dealing with a lot of disappointment uh, and that he had within his own life. So it's really pretty honest on that level. Cool. Well, thank you, Albert. Uh, I really appreciate you uh, giving us your insights here on Road to Hell. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1984, we've been talking about the biggest flop of the year, Walter Hill's Streets of Fire, which we we all have a bit of affection for, yeah, some more than others. And, and legacy-wise, Jason, you mentioned that initially when they thought that this was going to be a big hit, uh, Walter Hill was already planning a whole trilogy of adventures for Tom Cody that, of course, never happened. The Far City and Cody's Return, one was supposed to be in the desert and the other was supposed to be in the snow. Um, and we know this had elements of Star Wars, like you said, another galaxy, you know, so in a way that kind of that mimics Star Wars and Empire in, 
you know, different orders and stuff like that. So uh, the other big influences uh, that they mentioned were uh, Flashdance because that was such a huge hit, you know, like the year before. And uh, the John Hughes movies because they were really going for that romance right there. So, yeah, I don't know about the John Hughes thing, but yeah, Flashdance wise also in the in the scene in the battery where they go to the rockabilly club with the blasters and there's that woman who's dancing who's sort of, I guess, sort of like a stripper. She's the uh, dance double for Jennifer Beals. Okay. From, and uh, I, yeah, you were from Flashdance. You were Flash talking Dance, about yeah. the, the sexuality. I got her as kind of androgynous uh, yes. character. Yes, she is. And, and, and of course, in a, in a sad reflection of the times in uh, the Gary Arnold Washington Post review that I quoted in the first segment, I did not quote the section where he complains about her uh, not being feminine enough and therefore he did not find her sexy. Mm. <laughs> so, um, but I think you're right that she is meant to be somewhat androgynous. Um, I would have loved, uh, I mean, I would have loved both of them, but I think him doing a movie in the snow in this world, like what the hell would that have looked like? You know, that would yeah. have been amazing. I don't know if it would have been amazing because I feel like so much of what is appealing about this movie is the city is the setting and to take tom cody out of that and i mean i guess maybe we would still have mccoy because she uh joins him at the end of this movie to go on to further adventures but we would have lost all the other characters and the rock clubs and so much of what makes this movie good that i don't know how that would have worked out well you still would have had some type of rock opera in there and those two characters. And, um, you know, I would have taken my chances with it. Cause I'm sure, like we said, like, you know, like you, you just said you didn't love the warriors. I totally understand that, but it looks great. It's a great looking movie and this is a great looking movie, you know? So I think Hill would have, uh, done something unique there and maybe he could have replaced Michael Perret. <laughs> yeah, maybe so. <laughs> but Michael Perret did in fact return for uh, Albert Pune's very not official sequel, Road to Hell, um, which did get Michael Pere back as Tom Cody and uh, an actor who we haven't mentioned, Deborah Van Valkenburg, who plays Tom Cody's sister. And it's been a very long time. And Dave, maybe you remember from having seen Road to Hell. I think because it's not officially a sequel, they never mentioned their actual names, but I'm not 100% sure about that. That, that sounds familiar. Yeah, I think you're right about that. Um, but that, of course, is a film. And I think that film, the existence of that film, speaks to how strong a fan following Streets of Fire engendered, is that another filmmaker was so taken with this movie that 25 years later, he decided to make his own sequel. And he got Michael Pore and he got Deborah Van Valkenburg and uh, the the main musical performance or the main musical presence in that movie is uh, a local Vegas musician. And Albert Pune is also based here in Las Vegas. Uh, but Roxy Gunn, who is a local Las Vegas musician, plays Ellen Dream, the daughter of Ellen Aim, and uh, performs a bunch of original songs in Road to Hell. And uh, yeah, Dave and, Dave and I saw that movie in a small room full of, what would you say, Dave, maybe 10 people? Sounds about right. Yeah. Which a I big was, room, though. Uh, okay. But, yeah, with 10 people. <laughs> yeah. It was the, I believe, the official premiere of that movie, I want to say, possibly, the first time it was shown. Yeah. And I feel, speaking to the whole midnight movie thing, I feel like uh, those 10 people were very raucous uh, during that time. Though. Yeah, that could have been. <laughs> now, Josh, uh, one thing that uh, you didn't mention is that both Michael Perret and... Deborah Van Valkenburg were available for that 
film. <laughs> oh, very much so. Very much so. And as I kind of alluded to earlier, this was really the height of Michael Perret's career. Uh, I mean, he works steadily still. And uh, I review a lot of uh, straight to VOD movies these days, and he's all over that shit. Um, so he's certainly working, but Michael Perret is the guy where like, if you have say $20,000 to make your movie and you're thinking we need to spend a portion of our budget on an actor that people maybe have heard of, you're going to call Michael Perret. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, we mentioned Eric Roberts earlier. He's not far behind. No, no, he's definitely, in fact, Michael Perret and Eric Roberts both, uh, have appeared in uh, productions by local Las Vegas filmmakers. So yeah, it's true. Yeah, they're they're working. You know, they're getting it done. Walter Hill is also still working. And Jason, you said you know he's a great craftsman. He knows how to put together a movie. I haven't seen really any of his work other than this movie and The Warriors. But I know a lot of his later films, especially in recent years, have very poor reputations. So he kind of also declined quite a bit and made in the 80s and maybe even in the early 90s, made a bunch of other movies that were biggish studio productions that were flops. And I think eventually the studio stopped giving him money. Josh, when you're a supernova like Walter Hill, sometimes you just burn out before your time. <laughs> yeah, Supernova, one of the uh, infamous films that Walter Hill made. <laughs> and I believe Supernova also is possibly, I'm not sure about this, but it may be the last movie that was ever credited to Alan Smithy, which is the, the pseudonym that directors used to use when they wanted to take their name off of movies and that stopped being used because people were too familiar with what it meant. And I think it might've been in part because of that movie, but I'm not 100% sure on that. You're bringing the meat today, buddy. That, oh, uh, <laughs> I mean, or, or I'm completely or I wrong. can... You know, but if but it sounds like you could be right, so we can't really call you on it. So it's a good it's a good specific go. yes. piece that you brought there. It's important so. to be possibly right about things, or uh, right enough that no one can question whether that's true. Yeah, so. or wrong enough, but still believe that uh, you're right. And um, hey, I'm glad the election's over, and we don't have to deal with that anymore. There, there, <laughs> there you go. Um, no, okay. I'm actually, I'm, I'm, I'm looking, I'm looking this up and uh, I was not quite right. Supernova was the first movie where Alan Smithy was not used. It was after Alan Smithy was retired. And so Walter Hill was not able to credit himself as Alan Smithy and instead was credited as Thomas Lee. So oh, I wonder if he was mad about that. <laughs> like that's a, it's a badge of honor in a director's career that at one point you can take your name off of something and be credited as Alan Smithy. We went to high school with a kid named Thomas Lee and I accidentally hit him in the head with a discus once. And that would have <laughs> gone uh, very well in uh, the warriors that could have fit perfectly. In did there. they, did they use a discus to, to, no, but they use baseball bats and um, the men's room and, you know, Subway platforms, why not, you know? Sure. Uh, so obviously, Jason, you've seen The Warriors. Have you seen other Walter Hill movies? No, I'm going to leave it at those two. <laughs> okay, yeah. No, I, <laughs> I also, I believe I've only seen those. I was trying to think, I may have seen parts of uh, Brewster's Millions, which was the movie he made right after this, uh, like when I was a kid on TV, but I don't entirely remember. Yeah, so. and that was a big success. I'd see that. I'd see, you know, uh, what was it, 48 Hours, right? Big sure. Success, you know, so. He's had, he's had a good run, so. Yeah, and, he, and again, he's still around. His last movie, I think, was in 2016, which was uh, 
film with Michelle Rodriguez as a transgender assassin that was very, very heavily trashed by literally everyone. Yeah, um, Gary but, Arnold said he she was not sexy enough as either in her male or female identifiers there. So, you know. Yeah, uh, it's, you know, I think Gary Arnold's not around anymore, but I could totally <laughs> sadly see him saying that. Uh, well, <laughs> you know, uh, Josh, I liked... Uh, what did you think of Larry Gross's quote where he was talking about, like, no matter what you think of the movie, you watch RoboCop, you watch Seven, and you see its influence all over them? Yeah, I mean, those aren't, those particular movies aren't the ones that I thought of, but you can definitely see the influence. The movie that I thought of most while watching this was Sin City. Yeah. Which I think is, sure. is it's the stylized, it's the fictional city that sort of represents every urban environment, but not any specific urban environment. And I would think not only with that, but just in general, that Robert Rodriguez has to be hugely influenced by this movie. And the, the other Rodriguez thing I thought of actually was this, the very, another flop, the very ill-fated Cirque du Soleil production, R.U.N., which I believe you saw as well, Jason. And I, and I totally thought about that um, as being influenced by this. I mean, the story is very influenced, the colors, um, you know. The Even the motorcycles. Yeah, the cityscape. You're you're 100% right on that, Josh. So I, I've got one, too. Uh, not a movie, though. And then I ended up looking this up and found out that I was actually right about this. Uh, Street Fighter, yeah. uh, Double Dragon, Final Fight, and Streets of Rage. All these like beat-em-up video games were like all of the setting, the different characters that are like totally mismatched, you know? Uh, totally influenced by yeah, this. Yeah, Final Fight, I definitely remember as one, and then Street Fighter, I mean. So this movie's definitely earned its righteous place in pop history, Josh, in pop cultural history. Yeah, I think so. It's certainly an influential film. And I was thinking, too, I'm sort of surprised that this movie has never become a stage musical because it seems like exactly the kind of thing that some Broadway producer would want to adapt, you know, someone who saw it when they were a kid and has held on to it and... Jim Steinman certainly is somebody who could really write the hell out of some extra songs for this, I would yeah, say. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah. Uh, hey, Josh, you know what I thought was interesting, obviously, as a Springsteen guy with um, this song, you know, being named after the song? Take a guess how many movies are named after Springsteen songs. I'm going to guess it's a lot. I don't know, 20, maybe? No, that's way too much. I got uh, up to okay. like eight, eight, and then there were like two or three that were like inspired by, you know, like, hey, this movie's based on a Springsteen song. But that's pretty good, you know, to have. And then Thunder Road was a song he wrote based on the old Robert Mitchum movie, The Ballad of Thunder Road. And then they made a movie, Thunder Road, based on the song Thunder Road. So he's really, uh, you know, a media darling. I think he's going to do all right. For him, so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's uh, Jungle Land, which is another movie that just came out that's named after a Springsteen song. And that, weirdly enough, this is a super tangent, but I think that kind of relates to the situation they had here where they named the movie after the Springsteen song. And you think, and they, they tried to get that song to play at the end of the movie and then it doesn't happen. And in Jungle Land, it's named after that song. And you think they're going to play that song at the end of the movie in the big climax. And then they play a different Springsteen song instead, possibly because they couldn't get the rights to Jungle Land. I don't know how that worked. Yeah. And Jungle Land actually thematically fits in with this movie, with Streets of Fire, and also the kind of bombacity and um, orchestral and theatrical cinematic quality might have been a really good song for this one right here, which is interesting. 
But um, I thought, you know, there's Streets of Fire, Jungle Land, Thunder Road, Blinded by the Light, which is probably the best of the bunch. Sadly, Kevin Smith's Jersey Girl, which is first a Tom Waits song, but Springsteen popularized it. Uh, the Indian Runner, which is based on Highway Patrolman, I think, Sean Penn's movie. And then, Josh, the two that you really love, Ed Burns, She's the One, and No Looking Back, which is based on Don't Look Back. And uh, that's important stuff. Man, you know, it's been too long since Ed Burns was brought up on this podcast. He was such a running theme in our early days, and I'm glad we can bring it back. She's the one was a good movie. I don't think I've seen that. I think uh, we've been going through these actors, and I think we have to, again, give some some more credit to Diane Lane, who was uh, sort of trashed uh, by a lot of critics for this film. But Diane Lane is amazing, and she's had an awesome career, and she's very versatile. She still works in a lot of really good movies, giving really good performances. I just saw her in that Kevin Costner thriller, Let Him Go, and she's excellent in that. Um, But she was really good at playing a rock star. She just, this was the second time she'd done that in like two years after uh, Ladies and Gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains, which is another kind of underground cult uh, type of movie. So I just, you know, credit to Diane Lane. Josh, when it comes to the 80s, Diane Lane Tonight is what it means to be young. She knew all about it. Okay. I didn't know where you were going with that. But <laughs> I thought, sort of, uh, I didn't really. I was expecting a, a pun of some kind and it just No, she encapsulated that young energy of all the possibilities out there in the 80s. She and, did. You know, and Ellen Aim and the attackers, they, uh, they brought it to life for us. They did indeed. So uh, anything else you want to mention on the legacy of this film, Jason? Watch the movie. It's it's awesome. So <laughs> it is a fun it's a fun movie to watch. And this is obviously not the time to get large groups of people together. But if you happen to have people in your household, gather them all together to watch Streets. Maybe, of Fire. you know, I you know, look, we're not telling you to have people over for the holidays. You shouldn't, but you're gonna anyway. So get the kids, sit them down, watch Streets of Fire. You know what we should do is we should organize a drive-in Streets of Fire awesome movie or screening. Yeah, make that happen, Dave. Dave, make uh, it I'm, happen. I'm on it. I'm yeah. on it. This would be this would be a great movie to see at the drive-in. And, I know. Yeah. And, um, they've been showing, you know, theaters in general are, are showing lots of older films because that's all that's available right now. I would love to see this at the drive-in. Yeah, now, Dave, are you going to do that before you, or after you get us in touch with Martin Brest from Beverly Hills Cop, which was... I have, I have a busy weekend. Yeah, okay. Dave, Dave's to-do list is quite long. Um, hey, Josh, so, yes? am I the only one who wants to go as one of these characters for Halloween? Because I think that would be super fun also. Which character are you going to do? I think I'd probably do Ellen Aim. That would be the most <laughs> fun of the bunch, right? Yeah, you're not going to you're not going to wear the, the the vinyl overalls or whatever the Willem Dafoe outfit. The, the chafing alone is going to put me <laughs> away from that one. And you know, McCoy, they'd just be like, "Hey, Indiana Jones, where's your hat?" You know, yeah. so it's like Ellen Aim's the way to go. You know? All right. Well, I look yeah. forward to seeing that next Halloween. All right. <laughs> so that's Streets of Fire. And that's this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can follow us on social media. We're, we're all over social media, Josh, on many platforms. So For many. instance, we have a website. It's called awesomemovieyear.com. But if that's not enough for you, we have a Facebook platform. And guess what? We have yet to be debunked for putting out uh, fake news on it. And it's at Awesome Movie Year. And at our Instagram's at Awesome Movie Year. Our Twitter's at Awesome Movie Pod because we keep things spicy, Josh. 
Uh, I'm at uh, Jason Harris Comedy on Facebook and Instagram. Jason J Harris Comedy, not Jason J, just J Harris Comedy on Twitter. And go for Jason.com, a website that was not appreciated in its time, nor will it be in any other time. I am at joshbellhateseverything.com, which I have some plans to add some stuff to coming up. So look for that. Uh, Also at joshbellhateseverything on Facebook and at signalbleed on Twitter. And you can check out our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. You can check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at PiecingPod. And uh, Dave, you got some cool stuff on the By David Rosen Patreon, right? Isn't some of your new music is there as well? Sure. Yep. I, I've got these uh, album length commentaries that are going up uh, about all my albums, as well as some bonus music. And then, of course, the awesome movie year and piecing it together content as well. And speaking of Dave's music, can I just tell you how delighted I was? When I listened to the awesome movie year episode on Beverly Hills Cop and heard the Jason H theme song, which is also on the Patreon. And I'll put it up on, uh, you know, some of the other platforms. But Dave, you really nailed that theme song. It's awesome. Thank you, Jason. I'm glad you liked it. I, I agree. It's, it's quite, quite amazing. And uh, just <laughs> Dave. Great. You know, just in general. Shout out to Dave. Um, <laughs> Thanks, guys. So, Jason, what's in our next episode? Josh, uh, next episode, we are covering the Palme d'Or winner of 1984 from the Cannes Film Festival, Vim Vendors, Paris, Texas. So tune in next time for Paris, Texas. And thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.